Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. In 1900, the Catholic Church stood staunchly against religious freedom and the secular state. By the 1960s, that position was reversed, and Catholics began advocating for particularly Catholic forms of modernity. How did this happen? How did the world's largest religious organization become modern? James Chappell traces answers to these questions in his recent book, Catholic Modern, The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church. It tells the story of how radical ideas emerged in the 1930s and exercised enormous influence after World War II in Catholicism and in European politics more generally. James Chappell is Assistant Professor of History at Duke University. I'm pleased to welcome him to NBIR to discuss further. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So at NBIR, we often begin with a general background question, and that's how I'm going to start today as well. What drew you to this topic? I was raised Protestant in Central Florida, and I guess like probably like a lot of Protestants or American Protestants, Catholics always seemed like a sort of more exotic or more interesting kind of Christian when I was little. Um, And so I sort of brought this fascination with Catholics into college. Actually, I didn't write about them. I wrote my thesis on um, Isaiah Berlin, the uh, British liberal, Russian British liberal philosopher. And he had a similar kind of fascination with British Catholics, who seemed to be this kind of this kind of a relic of medievalism in modern liberal society. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. I went to start, I went to graduate school, started working on European history, and then it it came to seem that this sort of marginal fascination in mind might have some real legs. Um, it became clear to me that Catholics played this huge and largely unexplored and unexplained. I don't want to say unexplored. Obviously, many historians have written about it, but I did think unexplained role in 20th century European history. And so as I was reading all about. 20th century Europe, this place of such sort of, um, you know, economic calamity and genocide. And just there was such this change. If you go back to the early 20th century, Catholics are these sort of anti-Semitic monarchists agitating against liberal democracy. A couple decades later, they are at the forefront of Christian democracy, the kind of greatest political experiment in 20th century European history. And the fact that the transition from one to the other, I thought, had been totally unexplained. And so that seemed to me like a really rich place to focus my energies as a graduate student. And that's what led to the dissertation that eventually became uh, the book we're talking about today. So could you briefly set the stage for us? Uh, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're a Europeanist, but what countries do you focus on in this book? Who are some of the primary players who you examine? So the Catholic Church, it's a one of the challenging things about the Catholic Church to study is that it is this sort of impossibly global um, institution. It's really not possible to study the Catholic Church as a whole. Uh, nobody has enough information or knowledge. Uh, even the European Catholic Church, so Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, Polish Catholics, um, these are all such different sorts of um, institutions, different sorts of contexts. I chose to focus on um, France, Germany, and Austria. So that those are the three um, stories I focus on in the book. I do not think that they are exceptional. I think by focusing on these, I can at least get at what is the broader story of the 20th century Catholic Church. Um, so I, that's, that's why I wanted to focus on not just one country. I did want to to focus on a few countries to get a sort of more general, broad story. Uh, but focusing on all of Europe would be too capacious. So I chose these three uh, for a couple of reasons. One is just, of course, sort of linguistic capacity. 
Another is that it became clear to me that it was in these places especially that the concepts and ideas that would eventually become dominant in the church are first sort of sort of uh, forged. These places all have very large Catholic populations. They also have, oh, I should mention, I'm an intellectual historian, which means that I focus on sort of ideas and concepts and texts. So these three countries have large and vibrant Catholic populations. They also have sort of a vibrant Catholic intellectual culture, which ends up being translated through the Vatican into sort of the global church. So these three countries, uh, I think, are extremely significant for any story of modern Catholicism. You note that in the 1920s, anti-modernism was still a viable position for many Catholic intellectuals. First, could you tell us what you mean by Catholic anti-modernism? And second, why did it still seem plausible to thinkers in the 1920s? So the book is called Catholic Modern, and it's basically an attempt to say there was a point at which Catholics were more or less aligned around anti-modern principles, and at some point they became more or less aligned around modern principles. And the big question there, of course, is how is modern being defined? So the word modern has just innumerable kinds of meanings. And I, I was even a little bit almost reluctant to use it for that reason, because it can mean and it can mean technology, it can mean democracy, it can mean atheism. There's so many, and it's a complicated term. But I do think, and this comes largely out of sort of a religious studies literature, that when it comes to religion, modern can have a more or less analytically precise meaning. And when talking about religion, what modern signifies is a situation in which religion is located in the so-called private sphere, where religion is no longer part of the state, where it's no longer part of the economy. In America, what we would simply call the sort of separation of church and state. So one way to frame the question asked by the book is when do Catholics accept the separation of church and state, or the separation of church and economy. And one of the things that was surprising to me is that this didn't happen until quite late. So if you look at the 1920s, which is where the book begins, so chapter one is called Catholic Anti-Modern. What I've tried to show in that chapter is that Catholic opposition to modernity actually survived until very late, until the end of the 1920s. Catholics were, by and large, at least as a sort of conceptual matter, opposed to secular modernity. And this might seem strange. You might think, oh my gosh, this is the age of sort of, you know, jazz music and cars and things like that. And how could Catholics live in that world and reject modernity? And it might seem surprising to us, but I think if you transport yourself back to the 1920s, it isn't really, because what had they just lived through? On the one hand, there's jazz music in the cabaret. But on the other hand, you just lived through World War I. You just lived through sort of the most catastrophic war Europe had ever seen. You know, millions of dead, a whole generation is lost. And the Catholic perspective on that was, well, what do you expect? We've been saying all along, we've been saying ever since the French Revolution of the 18th century, that if you separate church and state, you're bound to lead you're bound to find yourself in these horribly violent situations. And look, that's what happened. So France separated church and state. Germany, you know, was not a Catholic state either. They go to, of course, they got into a terrible war. These are two states that are not guided by the Catholic Church. So that's one thing is that you've just seen this terrible war where it's, from a Catholic perspective, confirmed the opposition to modernity they'd had all along. And um, at the same time, other kinds of state regimes that did have sort of a ch the church-state fusion that Catholics wanted, those had been around in a very living memory. So something like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which to us sounds like this thing, oh my gosh, that's could what could be more old-fashioned or antiquated than the Austro-Hungarian Empire? For the 1920s, it had just vanished a couple of years earlier. Um, let me just say what that was, by the way. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire is was largely in sort of Central and Eastern European um, land empire in which the Catholic Church had sort of enormous public power 
and prestige. It was governed by a Catholic monarchy. It was kind of what Catholics had wanted all along. And until World War I, in much of Europe, they have it. And so from that perspective, if you ask why are they so opposed to modernity in the 1920s, maybe it's not so surprising. You have this beautiful way, actually, in that chapter of describing the feelings of these intellectuals as living in time that was out of joint. Uh, so in other words, they were both pre-modern and, ult- and also ultra-modern. And the, there's this nostalgia for the medieval period as well amongst some of them. For sure. And it's something that, you know, it's not just Catholics. I mean, it's something like you know, someone like T.S. Eliot, you can see, who is um, an Anglican, you can see a similar kind of a sense in the 1920s that and I think this ironically underlies a lot of sort of modernist aesthetics as well, a sense that modernity had somehow gone awry and that it was necessary to return to older sources um, of meaning. Because I think we can, it's easy to forget how much World War I had caused people to question the myths of sort of liberal civilization and democracy and things like that. And I'll just, I'll just, um, just clarify for listeners something you just brought up. It's not so. There were many Catholics were at this time, um, what I call medievalists. They did desire to restore some kind of medieval order. They just thought the Middle Ages had been a great period, and this is why not go back to that. It's a kind of simple, um, simple thing. But there are other Catholics. Catholic Catholicism has always had this kind of very forward-looking component. I think this is true of Christianity from the beginning, because on the one hand, embedded in Christianity is a kind of nostalgia for the time before the fall, but also embedded in Christianity is a sense that salvation is coming. It's ahead of us. And so you can see both of those elements in uh, the 1920s, where you have some wanting to go back before the original sin of modernity, and others saying, no, we need to work through it, and we need to come at some kind of, it will be industrial, it might even be democratic, but it will be some kind of postmodern, post-liberal age in which Catholicism and the state would somehow have some a, a, a novel kind of synthesis. And I, I call them ultra-modern Catholics, because while they are totally on board with um, mechanization and trade unions and all these things, they just don't think that the secular liberal state and separation of church and state is at all a sustainable solution. The heart of your book, for me at least, really comes when you start talking about the 1930s. It was out of the chaos and bloodshed of this period, as you argue, that the church really becomes modern. So tell us a little bit about this all-important decade in history. Perhaps we could start with some of the Catholic response to communism, for example. One of, I take to be the major uh, contributions of the book, is to place the 1930s at the center of the 20th century Catholic experience in a way that I think kind of surprisingly hasn't quite been done before. Um, So just to set the stage a little bit, so the 1930s, as many listeners probably know, is this era of, on the one hand, sort of tremendous chaos, but on the other hand, kind of novelty and experimentation in European politics. So it also, so the story is essentially is that there is, um, after World War I through the 1920s, there were an attempt to sort of rebuild a liberal democratic order. This um, has was always shaky, and then once the Great Depression hits in 1929, these liberal democratic states start sort of falling. Um, most famously, of course, uh, Germany fall into the National Socialists in 1933. And so Catholics are confronted with this world in the 1930s in which sort of anything's po- anything seems possible. Um, Nazis are coming up with new ideas, communists are coming up with new ideas, uh, Various kinds of fascists are coming up with new ideas. And Catholics realize during this period that their old sort of anti-modernism was no longer a plausible response. That Because one thing that unites all these different people in the 1930s, that Nazis and communists and fascists and even liberal Democrats in places like the United States and Great Britain, is that they're all modern. So this is one thing that historians have paid a lot of attention to recently is how 
well, not which is this is not to make any kind of moral equivalency, but if you think in terms of sort of political economy or statecraft, you can see a kind of a continuum of responses to the Great Depression, where in some ways Roosevelt's Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini are all embracing similar kinds of status modernization projects in response to um, the kind of the, economic depression and misery of the period. And Catholics realize, okay, the con the contest now is not between modernity and anti-modernity. That ship has sort of sailed. Now the contest is between different forms of modernity um, in which the two biggest ones on offer at this time are, as you suggest, sort of the fascist form, which is, you know, most clearly associated with someone like Hitler and the communist form, most clearly associated with someone like Stalin. Hitler and Stalin are both trying to modernize their societies. They're both trying to create new kinds of modernity that would give more to their populations after the Depression. And Catholics look at Europe and say, okay, these are the two options that we have. If we are going to keep our doors open, we're going to have to make our peace with one of them. Most of them, as you're suggesting, up for, uh, decide, okay, the, the worst one of these is communism. One thing I found is that actually surprisingly few Catholics either just embrace either fascism or communism. Most of them say, no, we're Catholics, but we're going to try to work with one or the other of them. And most of them say, we will try to work with some kind of fascism because communism is far, far worse. And so th that, in a way, I think is one of the big innovations of the 1930s is that Catholics place anti-communism at the center of their mission rather than anti-modernism. And this is going to be true throughout the end of the 20th century. I mean, a lot, as you and a lot of listeners probably know, the church plays a major role in the sort of um, ending phases of the Cold War. Uh, Catholic anti-communism is a, is a big deal in American politics, Think about someone like McCarthy. And I think it really gets its start in the 1930s. Before that, Catholics had lumped communism in with all the other kinds of modernity they didn't like. They saw it as similar to democracy um, and similar to liberalism. These are all these are just bad things and modern things. In the 30s, communism itself becomes the supreme evil. And in the name of combating communism, Catholics are willing to make all sorts of compromises with other kinds of modern movements, most notably Nazism. And so one of the um, big stories of this period is that in Germany, Catholics are essentially willing to ally with Hitler in order to stave off communism. And in fact, Hitler comes to power because the Catholic Party decides to give him their support like in this, at, at the last minute. And why do they do it? Not because they're furious anti-Semites or because they love Hitler. In fact, most Catholics didn't love Hitler. I mean, compared to, um, compared to Protestants anyway. But why do they do it? Because they see communism as the greater evil. So what is it about communism that seems so heinous to them? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that um, I, have a, I have myself some trouble thinking myself back into as somebody who, you know, grew up only in the later phases of the Cold War. There's something about, so you're right, there's a, there's a way in which in the 30s, communism becomes to seem like an unbearable threat. And this is how it would seem to Catholics until the end of the Cold War, and maybe even later. And I think that the primary Two, two things. One is that Catholics had the idea, and this is this is largely based in, in, in fiction, a fictional idea of what communism was like, but there was also some reality to it, that if communist regimes came to power, not only would they maybe uh, close Catholic schools, there was a fear that they would actually erase the church as an institution. Because what Catholics are, I mean, Catholics have a as my book talks about all sorts of different sort of political programs um, and sort of welfare policies and things like this that Catholics want. But above all, what they want 
is for the church doors to stay open and for them to legally be able to receive the sacraments. And there's a fear that if communists come to power, they might not even get that. So is, was that fear justified? It's hard to say. The Catholics really believed it. Pope Pius XI really believed it. Uh, so I think that does explain a, a lot of it. Because someone like, like fascists, people like Hitler, would, at least in certain moods, and Mussolini as well, be quite friendly to the church. You know, they were, whatever their personal beliefs, they were at least willing to pay lip service to Christianity and were willing to sort of bring the churches in to their political mission in a way that communists are much less willing to do. So I think is that so a fear, A, that communism would actually um, sort of make the church vanish from Europe? And the other is that they have this idea that what, and this is also, um, I would say this is more rooted in reality. There's a fear that communists will attack not only the institution of the church in the public realm, but also where religion thrives in private, which for most Catholics at the time is the family. And so there's this obsession with communist assaults on the family. Uh, you can see this you know, throughout the 20th century, and John Paul II was also quite obsessed with this. It begins in the 1930s, where if you open up a Catholic newspaper uh, in Germany in 1932 or in Austria in 1935, what you'll see, I mean, among many things, but you'll see accounts of how Soviet communists want to destroy the family. They want to uh, abortions on demand. They want uh, divorce. There are these kind of lurid tales that circulate in the Catholic media about sort about uh, the return of polygamy in the Soviet Union. So some of this is in the realm of the fantastic, but it is true also that communism did have a alternative vision for gender politics, one that Catholics found it very hard to get behind. And so communism seemed like a real threat both to the institution of the church and the institution of the family in a way that fascists didn't. Because when it comes to both church and family, fascists were willing to at least pay lip service to these institutions in their traditional form. And as you mentioned in the book in some detail, but you just alluded to as well, that, of course, the kind of family that they are picturing in this period is an authoritarian one, and it's also a paternal one, and that this is mirrored in the ideal vision also of, of a sort of strong authoritarian church and state. That's right. It's a whole it's a whole model of authority that they see to be under assault from communists and that they think that they can... Um, reinstate normal modes of authority in which, you know, the, the Pope has control over Catholics, the authoritarian paternalist dictator has control over the citizens, there's some kind of alliance between the two, um, and that in the face of this corrosive communism, sort of noble masculine authority could um, save you from catastrophe. So if we move from this right-wing response to communism uh, and over to the left-wing response, the anti-fascist side, which is the other side of Catholic modernism in this period in the 1930s, and this is obviously a very different group of Catholic intellectuals on the anti-fascist side. Tell us a bit about them. Sure. So, you know, so getting at a little bit of the um, sociology of Catholic intellectual life. So the figures I was talking about before the sort of mainstream Catholics who want to say, okay, we'll find a way to work with fascists in the name of anti-communism and the name of the family. These are very mainstream figures. These are uh, the editorialists in the biggest Catholic newspapers. These are oftentimes bishops or clergymen. Um, these are sort of mainstream politicians, mainstream Catholic economists. On the other side, you have a you know significantly smaller, maybe more ragtag group of Catholic intellectuals who are, many of them are um, converts, maybe converts, oftentimes converts from Judaism, maybe they're married to a convert from Judaism. They're in, they're in a number of ways sort of outsiders from the mainstream church. And People like this are, it turned out, willing to much more willing to look at the compromises of the mainstream church and say, wait a second, this isn't what 
you know, Christ died for. Christ didn't come and found a church in order for you to ally with Nazis because you're afraid of communism. That's not, that's, that, that's a bridge too far. It might be, um, you know, the safe thing to do, but for them, for these people, Christianity is not even meant to be something safe. It's meant to be something risky. And so what you see developing at the same time, and I think this is another sort of major contribution of the book, is I tried to reconstruct what I think was quite a powerful and influential network of Catholic anti-fascists. And I should should say this this notion of anti-fascism is a um, it's a powerful notion at this time. You can find anti-fascism in America. Someone like um, you know someone like uh, Woody Guthrie or Steinbeck. I mean, these people identify as anti-fascists. What it means at the time, it doesn't just mean opposition to fascism. There are all sorts of people who, who oppose fascism for various reasons, maybe because you're a monarchist or something. What these, but what anti-fascism refers to is a, it signals an adherence to what was called at the time the Popular Front. So in response to the rise of Nazism, uh, Joseph Stalin in 1934 forms what he calls the Popular Front, which is an alliance of left-wing movements, some socialists, some communists, in order to combat the greatest evil of fascism. So anti-fascism refers to a kind of broad left-wing constellation. Now, a lot of Catholics found this very appealing. And so one of the things I do is sort of reconstruct the network and show how they were forging alliances with socialists, both intellectually. So part of this is about Catholics reading Marx and discovering, wow, Marx actually has a, something in common with Catholicism. Marx, too, and this is especially the young Marx, which is just being discovered at this time, and Catholics are obsessed with the young Marx, who is more interested in sort of robust human flourishing, um, which is compatible with Catholics' more Thomist ideas of human flourishing. And so they say, wow, Marx is really onto something here. So intellectually, you can see that, but also socially, you can see a number of Catholics start to say, huh, well, who really has sort of Christian charity at heart in 1930s Europe? Is it Hitler or is it these kind of socialist, anti-fascist trade unionists? Um, a number of Catholics are going to say the latter. So some of them are intellectuals and also some of them are themselves Catholic trade unionists. So you start to see both intellectual and political alliances being formed between Catholics and various kinds of Marxists. Uh, so yes, that's that, that's the story I, I trace in chapter three of the book. I wanted to pause here and ask you about two things in particular. And the first is the role of Jacques Maritain. And he's probably one of the few people, I would think, that a fair number of our listeners might have actually heard of, uh, sure. given that most of our listeners are uh, Americans um, or Canadians, I suppose. So how does, how does <laughs> Maritain fit into the story that you're telling here? Jacques Maritain is maybe one of the most famous or the most famous Catholic intellectual of the 20th century. Um, he is a uh, born a French Protestant. He converts. Uh, he's married to a Russian Jewish con um, convert. What makes him really interesting is that he, his story in some ways tracks the story we've been talking about so far, is that in the 1920s, he is a... Uh, you know, a sort of reactionary monarchist figure. He is somebody who's associated with a French, a royalist French movement called the Action Française, which is this anti-Semitic movement, anti-modern, completely, I mean, Marcotin writes a book called Anti-Modern, which is kind of what I'm referring to in the title to that chapter. So he has this moment in the 1920s. Around the end of the 1920s, early 1930s, he makes this big shift and becomes a very different kind of thinker, uh, one who's much more, in a way, modern, although he might not have used the word. It's clearly what he was up to. And he writes this amazing book called Integral Humanism, uh, which sort of sums up. I want to see him as a sort of Catholic anti-fascist in the 1930s. And I use him as a sort of node around which I build this chapter because he is this amazing stylist, brilliant thinker. And, you know, those two things are are often not married with a third thing that he also is, which is an inveterate uh, network builder. He's, his correspondence network is enormous. 
Christmas, and he's traveling. He's going to both the United States and Canada, which is maybe one reason why, you know, as you think might be true, all the American and Canadian listeners right now are just, you know, at the edge of their seats because we're talking about Jacques Maritain. Um, <laughs> as one always he, is when we talk about Jacques Maritain. Is. Of course. Exactly. I mean, any Catholic um, intellectual gets everyone sitting up and interested, but Jacques Maritain exactly. really gets us on the edge of our seat. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, and I think one of the things I want to do, uh, I, I, I try to do in the book, is that he, Makhachan after World War II becomes a different kind of figure. I mean, he's, he's mainly in America. Um, he's quite disenchanted with, hap- with, with what happens to post-war Europe and to the post-war church. And he ends, I think that later Makhachan is this kind of, uh, um, I don't know, I think it's sort of pessimistic kind of lonely figure. But in the 1930s, I think he is at the center of this network of Catholics that spans oceans and spans borders who are imagining a revived anti-fascist church and a revived Catholic Europe. And I think if you go back and look at integral humanism, it is this remarkable text. I think it's an anti-racist text. I think it's an anti-capitalist text. Um, I think it is, he symbolizes this real moment at which Catholics united around and formed a kind of a progressive, emancipatory, and even quasi-Marxist form of Catholicism. So I, one thing I'm trying to do in the book, I mean, it depends on one's politics, from my perspective, kind of recover the, kind of, the networks and the imaginary and the visions and hopes that he nourished in the 1930s. The other bit that I wanted to ask you about is anti-Semitism. And you mentioned a moment ago the role of Jewish converts, or in Maritain's case, his his wife was a convert, in these intellectual debates in the church in the 1930s and 40s. So this theme really runs throughout the first half of the book, this question about uh, anti-Semitism or uh, uh, sort of the Jewish question, I guess, if we want to... <laughs> if we want to paraphrase Marx, and how this then influences approaches to Catholic modernism. Tell us a little bit about that. How does it function in terms of the the networks that you're talking about and the visions that they have for the future? I mean, so I'll start with this. We were just talking about Makhachan and his anti-fascists. I'll start with them. Um, you know, on the Jewish question, it's, uh, you know, as you say, taking from Marx, but that's in, in a way actually quite appropriate here. So this is what Marx had, had argued in that text, I think, I think 1843, that um, the idea was more or less that anti-Semitism had very little to do with the Jews and a great deal to do with capitalism, and that there was a way in which anti-Semitic logic was generated from the kind of contradictions of capitalism. And this is something that Maritain and these anti-fascist Catholics in the 1930s revived something of this idea. They say, they look around at mainstream Catholic anti-Semitism and say, you're looking at the wrong place. You're right that there's something wrong and there is an enemy and that the world is not as it should be, but it's not the Jews' fault. That's ideology. It's in fact the fault of really capitalists and also fascists. So, what, but my, one of the things that makes these anti-fascist Catholics really exciting is that they have a sort of an, an anti-racist critique that is also tied to a broader sort of critique of political economy. Which is something I think you can see in Marx. And also, it's also something, by the way, that a lot of people are trying to do now inside and outside the church, which is one reason why I think uh, these networks are so interesting. But then the other thing is to recognize w- um, what they were up against. So... It's not until the 1960s that the church abandons the kind of uh, its workaday anti-Semitism in the sense that uh, there was a blaming of the Jews as a corporate body for um, the killing of Christ. That's not, that's not dogmatically clarified until the 1960s. And in popular culture, in, in sort of Catholic popular culture and in theological discourse throughout the most of the period I'm writing about, anti-Semitism is completely ubiquitous. And in fact, in, in some ways in the 1930s, it amplifies because um, Judaism becomes linked so explicitly with communism. So there's this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, which is to say that Jews and communists are, you know, in this unholy alliance seeking to kill Christ once again. And this is one of the things that um, sort of underwrites Catholic participation in these kind of anti 
uh, anti-Semitic and fascist regimes across Europe in the 1930s. And this is something that, uh, if listeners aren't already aware, they should know that anti-Semitism is not a German problem; it's a European problem. And like anything European, the Catholic Church is quite involved in it. Um, throughout the 19th century, you can see really intense Catholic anti-Semitism. And it's not until the 1930s, I don't think, that it starts to be rigorously and theoretically questioned. Um, and it's not until after the war and into the 50s and 60s that um, Catholics more broadly start to reject anti-Semitism. Uh, it, it, it's interesting to think about also um, as an, from an American context, because this is... This is the racial question that Catholics in Europe were confronting. They weren't thinking that much about, obviously, the African-American question. And also, I found they also weren't thinking that much about the imperial question. Insofar as they're thinking about race, they're thinking about the Jewish question. And and so in some ways, the the Catholic engagement with race is kind of maps onto um, what's happening, you know, in America or elsewhere in the world. There's a part in the book where you talk about, now I hope I'm going to get her name right, but Mina Wolfring, and you're, this is when you're talking about the anti-communists, but that mm-hmm. there's also this kind of embedded racism in the nationalist, pro-natalist movement. Yeah. And this connects to what you were saying earlier about fighting communism, but also often through this idea of creating strong Catholic families. Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Because it's similar. I mean, th- there's some overlap with this Judeo-Bolshevism that you're talking about. Sure. But it's also a bit more subtle than that, too. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so the figure you're talking about is um, Mina Wolfring. And I should say, if anyone's interested like in the book, uh, most of the people I follow are not well-known people. As I'm, I'm trying to get at sort of the evolution of Catholic common sense uh, so I'm trying to choose kind of representative figures rather than kind of famous theologians. Jacques Rakuten is sort of is the only real exception to that. And so Mina Wolfering is an Austrian welfare activist. I mean, people do not know about her unless they study Austrian welfare, which is um, not as large a group as you might think. And uh, <laughs> No the, one's sitting on the edge of their seats for no Austrian welfare. No, no, no one is waiting for Mina Wolfring. It's like, oh, finally, they're, they're skipping forwards to the Mina Wolfring part of the interview. Um, <laughs> so uh, she she heads up the Motherhood Protection Bureau she, um, in authoritarian Austria in the 1930s. And she's a Catholic. She goes and visits Mussolini. She actually has an audience with Mussolini. She's somebody who comes out of Catholic women's organizing. And what you can see in her, and it's something that, that I think happens more broadly in Europe, um, is that she allows us to ask this question is, okay, I've explained already in this interview why Catholics were worried about communists, but that doesn't really explain fully why they think fascists are much better. I kind of hinted at that, but there's, there are, as you're suggesting, more subtle or specific ways that they think fascists are better. And so, um, you know, Bullfring is uh, by following her story. I show how, how and why she allies with basically secular forms of fascism and why she thinks they're so much better than the communist alternative. And the answer, as you suggest, has to do with this concept of natalism. So natalism is um, basically it's the idea that uh, one should that the, that the nation should incentivize births, that you should have lots of births for the nation. And so if you take this idea of increasing the birth rate, there are a number of reasons why one might want that. An authoritarian leader like the one that Austria had wants an increase in birth rate because they want to strengthen the nation and because they want to build a greater army. A Catholic, from a Catholic perspective, they want to increase the birth rate. Not necessarily that they want to increase the birth rate, but they are opposed to anything like birth control, abortion, things like this. The Catholic idea of the family is still of a large family. So Catholics and secular nationalists both want to incentivize births kind of for different reasons, but they end up ideologically overlapping. So one, so one of, the, one of the, the, um, the major points of the book is to ask this question of, you know, why did it, why have Catholics focused so much on the family? Like that, that, that's a completely ubiquitous part of our experience of contemporary Catholics uh, in my entire, my, my entire lifetime. And if you go back 100 years ago, that just isn't true. Catholics in the 19-teens, 1920s, like aren't nearly as obsessed with the family as they have become later. And so one of the things the book does is take that as a research question and say, when and why 
that Catholics decided to focus so much on the family. And I argue that it was in the 1930s for these reasons, because it was Catholic family ethics that would became compatible with secular state building projects because secular state builders, they want lots of births. Catholic family ethics ends up with lots of births. That's an area of overlap. Catholics used to have all sorts of other things. They used to have political and economic ethics too, but those are much less compatible with the kind of secular projects we're talking about. And so as Catholics become modern, they have to sort of choose which element of the tradition to hold fast to. And if they choose the family, that's, that in a sense, that's much easier for them. It's a much easier transition. Someone like Malcolm does not do that. So one of the things that's really interesting about Malcolm is how little he writes about the family. He never has children, um, which is, I mean, which is not to say that that's necessarily important, but it's just to say that if you read his works, he's not talking about reproduction. He's not talking about sex. He's talking about these much broader questions of political economy. And so one of the things I want to say in the book is that this when this moment came when most Catholics said, oh, actually what matters most is sexual and reproductive ethics. And that's, a, in, a, in a sense, what Catholics continued to say for the rest of the century. There was always another option because people like Malcolm could say, no, look, by focusing so much on the family, it's leading you to these alliances with these terrible fascists. And that's what's more important. So, um, yeah, so to say someone like Volkering gets us to see the kind of mainstream Catholic response and this new focus on the family in the name of natalism. But someone like Makaten reminds us that it was never the only way to be a Catholic modern. One of the most fascinating arguments in the book is that these debates that we've been talking about in the 1930s, they don't simply disappear. They actually survive the war and become embedded in new political parties and formations in Europe. Tell us about the development of Christian democracy. Christian democracy, I mean, it's, it's, it's a phrase that it makes you want to snooze when you hear it. I mean, it, the people who are on the edge of their seats for bullfrying are not going to be caring even about this because it, it has this idea of Christian democracy. It's been for the last couple of decades, this very kind of state kind of center right, um, kind of boring political movement. And it's still a very powerful one. You know, Angela Merkel in Germany is the most famous uh, uh, Christian Democrat now. But I think actually Christian democracy is completely fascinating because what it is, is, as I think I mentioned this earlier, it's the most successful political movement in 20th century Europe. It's more, it's more successful than fascism or communism. It's around for longer. Um, think about it, and fascism is only really a force in Europe for you know, 20 years, really only 10 years. Christian democracy is the dominant uh, political platform in much of Europe for 40 or 50 years. And I feel like something that's that powerful has to come from someplace real. It can't in someplace deep and profound in European history and culture. It can't just be this kind of technocratic, boring party. And one of the things I try to show is that, in fact, it is. It is this very interesting thing, and it does emerge from the kind of cataclysms of the 1930s and World War II. It can often seem, and some historians think this way too, that you know, Europe went completely bananas in the 1930s and during the war. And the war was so terrible that afterwards, at least in non-communist Europe, people decided to just give power to really boring, non-scary parties. And those are the Christian Democrats. And there is some truth to that. But I think what it misses is the way that Christian democracy as an ideology really directly from these 1930s ideas that I was talking about. So as we've been talking about the 1930s, We've mainly been talking about, and this is going back like 20 minutes or so, A, Catholics decided to be modern, meaning that they no longer sought any kind of sort of church-state alliance. They no longer are talking about liberal democracy as, you know, um, invented by Satan. They're much more willing to kind of play the game of modern politics. I think that's a real innovation of the 30s. Another innovation of the 30s is that they are placing the family at the center of their social vision, much less than they are sort of um, Catholic, other kinds of Catholic institutional life. And I think that that is basically the gambit of Christian democracy. If you look at what Christian Democrats do, they are mainly Catholic parties. Their main focus is on the family. Geopolitically, their main focus is anti-communism. So I think there's a, a, actually a kind of direct line between the mainstream Catholics of the 1930s who forged this kind of modern, family-friendly, anti-communist Catholicism 
at the time, it's allied largely with fascism, but that's what it is. And then that survives across the war where it becomes enlisted in, in, in the name of a completely different political project. But I think it helps us to explain why that project was so powerful so quickly. Political ideas very seldom do they are they just born and become really popular overnight. They, they're successful because they're answering to some deeper set anxieties and um, ideologies that go further back in time. And that's true of Christian democracy as well. So, um, yeah, so one of the big arguments in the book is to talk about this Catholic modernism I talked about for the 1930s, how it survives across the war, and is the main inspiration, not the only, but the main inspiration behind the Christian democratic parties that emerge afterwards. As we've been mentioning during our discussion, you focus on a number of key intellectuals in this period. Some were well-known. We mentioned Maritain, but some were less so, like Mina Wolfring, for example. Which ones did you find most interesting to spend time with, as it were, as you were writing this book and researching it? Mm, That's an interesting question. Who did I enjoy spending time with? I think that the one who actually, this is a, this is going to sound like an unorthodox answer, maybe. The one who comes to mind, actually, is this guy named Theodor Brouwer, who was a um, German Catholic economist. And for, for many listeners, each of those three words is going to sound <laughs> completely boring. But I, I found, I spent lots of time with him, and I went to his archives. And something about it, so, who, so he, was, he, was, he came from a working-class family, he worked his way up through Catholic trade unions. He's someone who you can see in his writings in the teens and twenties. He has a real sort of humanist heart. He's really concerned about inequality. He really wants people to have higher standards of living. He wants public life to be ethical and moral. He thinks that Catholic trade unions are these great institutions that are going to help deliver more power and dignity to Catholic workers. There's something very appealing about him as a figure, but then he becomes a Nazi in 1933. And to try to understand the, um, the kind of steps that he took to get there, uh, someone who I had found a sort of compelling figure earlier, I found it kind of uh, intellectually exhilarating because I was sort of, one thing I do in the book is sort of follow with his letters um, and his travels, the steps that he takes. And it's one of the things that, you know, as I'm trying to live with him month to month through the early 30s, it makes sense to me why he acts the way that he does. But then he ends up as a national socialist. He ends up in the worst place you can be. And I found that to be intellectually challenging, but also really fruitful to think through. Because one of the things I try to do in the book, and he, this is one of the best examples of it, is to make these kind of Catholic fascists, not at all to provide an apologetics for them, but to make their compromises and choices seem explicable um, because they were compromises and choices that many millions of people thought were the right ones in an era that's m- much more traumatizing than an era that I've known. So it's very easy to look back and sort of um, discard them. But I think by, by looking, tracing a figure like Brower, one can see what was behind those choices, even though, in retrospect, they do seem to be the wrong and immoral choices. That's a really interesting answer, because as you note in the book, a lot of the discussion amongst historians about Catholicism and the Nazi party has really been about culpability. Why is it that even though the Vatican had a lot of information, they were not stepping in? Why is it that so many Catholics were both culpable at the time and also, unlike, for example, the Lutherans, did not say they were sorry uh, shortly after the war. And so, as you note, that has been, I think because of the the true horror of it, um, that has really been the focus of a lot of history. And so I I find your answer really interesting because as you point out, and what you're doing is this kind of excavation to offer a really dense kind of history, a a much more in-depth look at why millions of people are making these kinds of choices at the moment Mm -hmm. when they make them. Sure. Yeah. And as I said, I'm not trying to um, apologize for any of them. And but it's to say, fine, I accept they're, they're culpable. It's to understand um, why they did it as much as one can internally. But also, and this is the other crucial point, it's in the process of doing so 
they transformed what the church meant. And I think this is the part that um, has been really missed, is that everybody knows the Catholics made all sorts of accommodations with fascism and Nazism. And oftentimes the analysis stops there, which is okay, because that's a very important point, very morally important point. But what I think hasn't been done is to say, well, wait, but fascism and Nazism are obviously these very kind of modern in some ways quite secular kinds of political movements, how could Catholics make peace with them? They must have had to do some real conceptual innovation in order to make that possible. And so one of the things that they do in the book is try to show what that innovation looked like and how it survives after the war, and in some ways into the present. Last question, what are you working on now, speaking of the present and surviving into the future? Well... Oh, it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting that you put it that way, because uh, I'm actually working on uh, histories of old age, which is something that actually emerged from this, uh, from this research, and, but also deeper. I mean, I started at the beginning. I think I said at the beginning that I um, uh, grew up in Florida. And one thing that, you know, I think that historians, in ways they don't, they uh, are not always uh, cognizant of, are still, like all of us, enthralled to our own childhoods. And what Florida has in spades is religion and an elderly population. And so I feel like I've, I've, I've tackled half of it and I have the other half to go. And, but it's, it, it probably, that might be that in some kind of like deep, deeper psychological way. But really what it is, is as probably emerged from this conversation, my book about Catholicism in a way that I did not anticipate going in became very much a book about family and the way in which family is conceived, the way in which it's, um, administered. A lot of the book ends up becoming about sort of family policy and the way that Catholics are really central to crafting um, this family welfare state that we in America are often so envious of. A lot of it is because of the of power that Catholics had um, in crafting it. And this led them to also have a lot of power in crafting pension policies because pension policies are something that can seem so dry and technocratic but really what they are is it's a state administration of a particular family form. And so that led me to start thinking about the elderly as a really interesting site of investigation to think about those sort of longer term histories of ethics in the family and political economy. So that, that is what I'm up to now. That sounds wonderful. And I'm assuming the project after that will be a history of alligators. I'm not sure what the next Florida-based right. project <laughs> can right. be, but... Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. There are, there are all sorts of interesting projects that one can imagine <laughs> that's <laughs> coming, right. out of, coming out of a Florida, Florida childhood. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and chatting about the book, James. Again, it's Catholic Modern, The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church, and it is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and thanks for listening. <laughs>